Well, I want to begin this morning with a quote from one of America's premier theologians, Stephen Colbert. <laughs> Five years ago, Stephen Colbert gave America the word truthiness. Truthiness. Remember that? Remember that? I quote from Colbert, anyone who knows me knows that I'm no fan of dictionaries or reference books. They're elitist, constantly telling us what is or isn't true, what did or didn't happen. Who's Britannica to tell me the Panama Canal was finished in 1914? If I want to say it happened in 1941, that's my right. Can you hear him say this? I don't trust books. They're all fact, no heart. And that's exactly what's pulling our country apart today because face it, folks, we are a divided nation, not between Democrats or Republicans or conservatives and liberals. No, we are divided by those who think with their head and those who know with their heart. (laughs) He said, did you know that you have more nerve endings in your stomach than in your head? Look it up. Now, somebody's going to say, I did look that up, and it's wrong. Well, mister, that's because you looked it up in a book. (laughs) Next time, try looking it up in your gut. I did, and my gut tells me that's how our nervous system works. Now, I know that some of you may not trust your gut yet, but with my help, you will. The truthiness is... Anyone can read the news to you. I promise to feel the news at you. There it is. Stephen Colbert. (laughs) Interestingly enough, if you go online to Webster's and you you click under the new words or slang section, uh, you will see this definition of truthiness. The quality of stating what one wishes or feels to be true instead of what is actually true. (laughs) I don't know what you think of Colbert, but I think he was spot on when he gave us that definition. Because truthiness happens a lot these days, wouldn't you agree? Happens in the world of politics, it happens in the world of, you know, motion pictures, right? You know, this movie was inspired by true events, when more of it was the inspired part than the actual true events, even some novels uh, uh, or autobiographies, which we find out first, you know, were purported to be like actual, and I'm thinking of James Fry's A Million Little Pieces, uh, very well received at first, you know, rave reviews on uh, Oprah, but then later on it was discovered that most of it was just simply fabricated. And yet, even when pressed, he said, well, the emotional truth is still there. The emotional truth is still there. Oh. Politics, movies, books, churches? Churches? Here we are again on Sunday morning in a room like this. And each week we come into this place as a spiritual community And we worship, and as a part of this worship, I mean, think about it, a major block of time in our gathering here is to hear from the truth of the Bible. And our our operating assumption, our operating assumption is this, that the Bible, the 66 books that make up the Bible, the Bible is the best, most reliable truth for knowing God and the life 
he wants. And the Bible itself identifies, is self-identified as truth. Proverbs 23, verse 23. Buy the truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom, discipline, and understanding. And what about in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16? All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out and teaches us to do what is right. Jesus himself said uh, concerning God the Father in John 17, 17, your word is truth. So let this truth make them completely yours. And who can forget what our Lord himself said about himself? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These are strong words. Can we trust this as truth? Better still, what keeps us from trusting this as truth? Well, that's where I want us to go today. I want us to talk about the barriers that exist that keep us, that, that, are, that are truth inhibitors, that keep us uh, from trusting in the Bible as truth from God. And I want to talk about two specific barriers here this morning in our time. I want to talk about the head barriers, the thinking barriers that exist, that which that we just sometimes we just have a hard time buying into. You heard what some of those thinking barriers were on the video, and I want to talk about those head barriers. And then I want us to talk about the heart barriers. The heart barriers. There are some There are some heart inhibitors that just keep us from buying in to God's word. Head and heart. Let's start with the head. And by that I'm thinking about those things in the Bible that keep us from, or that make us hesitate, trusting scripture as it happened. As it happened. I call this the myth buster barrier. Some of us don't think that the Bible passes the myth buster test and that's certainly what we heard on this person of the street interview video that well it's just a bunch of stories or it's just a book or there's some myths and that that Matthew Mark and Luke and John were uh, four of many competing gospel accounts that existed and these four ended up becoming the dominant narratives due to the emperor Constantine when he made Christianity the state religion in the early 4th century. And, and, and what I just told you is propagated in Daniel Brown's fictional book, The Da Vinci Code. But regrettably, many people buy into that narrative as truth. I want to tell you why there are several reasons that we can accept the historical truth of the Bible. First of all, the facts surrounding the crucifixion of Christ were so well known in the first century that had it not occurred, people would have said so. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of a verse that we see, and it's, it's um, almost a verse that's just in passing, a detail that's like, why, you know, why would Mark include that? I'm thinking of Mark chapter 15, verse 21. Mark 15, 21 says, A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way 
in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. So this Simon of Cyrene, while Jesus was being crucified, you know, he was just kind of standing there, and the Roman soldier says, you, get over here, carry the cross. And, and verse 21 says that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Question, why would Mark include his names? Why would he include the names of his son? I mean, there's no, there's no reason to do that unless Mark wanted his readers to be willing to check his story. You see? I'm also thinking of another verse in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 26, verse 26. In this chapter, in Acts 26, the apostle Paul is sharing his faith story to uh, King Agrippa. And near the end of this faith story, Paul is talking about the truth. He's pleading the truth of, the, of how Christ has changed his life and regarding the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And he says uh, at the conclusion near in verse 26, Paul says, the king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. And then Paul says this, I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice. And notice that phrase, because it was not done in a corner. It was not done in a corner. In other words, Paul was not sharing truthiness. He was declaring truth. Jerusalem was there. Jerusalem heard and saw Jesus. Someone put it this way. The Bible would never be able to get away with claiming Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection with so many people on site who knew whether or not he was. See, thousands knew that the tomb was empty. And witnesses, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, up to 500 at one time had seen Jesus alive. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and many of them are are still alive. Ask them. Here's another interesting detail that helps me trust the historicity of the Bible. It comes from, again, it's just a small little verse In Mark chapter 4, verse 37. Now, in that section of Scripture, Jesus is uh, with his disciples going across the Sea of Galilee in a boat. It's a long day, and Jesus fell asleep in the boat. And while he was sleeping, you know, a windstorm hit their boat. Okay? Now verse 37. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. The, the, <laughs> the disciples were panicking to death and Jesus was in deep REM. He was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Now, why would Mark give that detail? He was on a cushion, huh? Why would he give us that? See? I say, well, that's, uh, yeah, that's what happens in fiction, the detail and all. Well, that, no, that's what happens in 21st century fiction, but not first century not of that detail. First century, first century fiction would never have that kind of detail. When, when you are recalling an event, your, your, your recollective memory is selective and it pays attention often to what amounts to irrelevant detail. So Mark is not writing his gospel as if he's a grand narrator of a mythical story. He's writing as if someone is telling him what they saw he's logging an eyewitness account. Which is exactly what we find in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke just, Luke just, just 
puts the cards out on the table with the very first verses of, of his gospel. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught, you see. Wow. Luke wants us to read his gospel as if it really happened. And that's why you can trust its truth. But there's another reason that I think we can trust the Bible's truth. Um, and I want to talk about it before we move off this point. And it's, it's, just, a, it's just a great teaching and learning um, matter that I, I discovered this week. And, and uh, write down in your notes the word embarrassment. 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 Um, Why can we trust the truth of God's word? William Lane Craig says that the Bible can be trusted because of the criteria of embarrassment. Embarrassment. And what he means by that, he asks the question, are there passages from the Bible where when you read them, it feels awkward? It feels awkward. For instance... When you turn to Mark chapter 8 and look at verses uh, you know, 22 to 26, here is a passage of scripture, I've got it on the screen here, that brings up this criteria of embarrassment. Now verse 22 says, they came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. Nothing embarrassing about that. Verse 23 though. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. Now, why would Jesus do that? Why wouldn't he just take him in the middle of town square, just right smack dab in the middle so everybody could see this? But no. no, what happens? He takes him outside the village. Huh? Takes him outside the village. And then verse 23 says, when he had spit on the man's eyes. That's kind of embarrassing. Jesus doing spitting on this man's eyes. I wonder what that would look like. Let's recreate that. Carl, come on up here. <laughs> no, no, sit down, Carl. <laughs> so much for object lessons. But that's what it says. Huh? When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? And then now look at verse 24. It just even gets weirder. He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. You know, like in that movie, The Lord of the Rings. (laughs) And what does Jesus say? Really? Well, come back here. Let's do that again. No, that's what it says. Once more. (laughs) Once more, Jesus put his hand on the man's eyes. He had to do it again. And then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. He saw everything very clearly. And then Jesus sent him home saying, don't go back into the village. What? See? 
Now, then the point is this. If, if Mark were fabricating a biography about a Messiah that he wanted us to trust and believe in, I don't think he would have included this. He would have created this uber-Messiah that's, you know, faster than a speeding bullet and more powerful than a locomotive and leaps tall buildings, you know. And, and, and that's what the ancients would have done. But Mark wrote what eyewitnesses saw. And you may be asking, well, why did Jesus have to do that again? And the most scholarly people on this say, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't know. I don't know. I'll find out in heaven. But here's the deal. Someone said that if the skeptics of the Bible are, are right, then that means that the disciples, if the skeptics of the Bible are right, then that means that the disciples must have disappeared into heaven immediately after the resurrection That's the only way that the legends could have come uh, into the story of Jesus. But that didn't happen. There were too many people who could have said, wait a minute. Jesus didn't say that. or, Or Jesus didn't do that. Or he wasn't like that. I was there. I was there. Too many people. It is like when the president of Iran stands up and says that, you know, the Holocaust never happened. And we go, what? Too many people still alive. He says, I, I was there. There's too much evidence. And that's what we're seeing here. There's too many people who could have said, no, Jesus didn't say that, or Jesus didn't do that, or he wasn't like that. We can trust the truth of the Bible. Not the truthiness, but the truth. The truth. Now, there's another barrier, though, that I want us to cover, and it's, I think it's a harder barrier for us. You know, this, this is a thinking head barrier on the one hand, but I want to talk about the heart barrier, the heart barriers that keep us from trusting God's truth. And what I mean by that is this. Some people are just really put off by the culture of the Bible, and they read the Bible, and it feels culturally regressive. It's not progressive, it's regressive. And, and, and we just, you know, just kind of cringe at the Bible's culture because in our 21st century world, we're just more advanced. And, and I'm thinking of a verse in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. The Apostle Paul says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. And with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. We read that in our world. We say, see, the Bible supports slavery. And what happens is, is that we see the word slavery there in Ephesians 6, 5. And we inevitably and understandably think of 18th and 19th century race-based African slave trading. And I have no doubt that in America... 150 or 160 years ago, there were white pastors who stood behind a pulpit before black slaves and read this verse. And what happens is that we read our history into ancient history, and we assume that old world slavery was just like new world slavery, the chattel slavery, race-based slavery, for-life slavery, slavery that began through kidnapping. And the fact of the matter is, In the first century Roman Empire, had you walked down Main Street in Ephesus, as Sarah and I got to do last year in our trip to Turkey, 
You all, in, in all probability, would not be able to tell the difference between a slave and a free person. Because ancient history tells us that, that in the Roman Empire, they weren't distinguishable by race or by speech or by clothing or by education. In many, in many cases, slaves looked and lived like everybody else. And financially, they weren't necessarily poor. Slaves could even own slaves. And they could even earn enough to buy their freedom. And many did after 10 or 15 years. And yes, yes, cruelty and abuse existed, just like cruelty and abuse abuse exists in our, in our free world. And I'm not trying to justify first century Roman Empire slavery. I'm just trying to tell you that it's different. And once we do our homework, we realize that some texts may not teach what they appear to teach. Furthermore, when we say that a verse is culturally regressive, isn't that assuming that we have arrived at the pinnacle of history? Since we're on this issue of uh, Ephesians chapter 6, I want to draw your attention to a section of Scripture in Ephesians. Let's see the slide there that talks about the household code in Ephesians 5.21 to 6.9. It's a section of Scripture where the Apostle Paul gives instructions to Christian husbands and wives and Christians' fathers and children and Christian masters and slaves. It's a section called the household code. And what you need to understand that the household code, well, that was a code that was not original to the Apostle Paul. In the secular world of the first century, and even earlier than that, ancient history would give us records of household codes. That is, that's triplet just in this way. Husbands, wives, fathers, children, masters, slaves. This goes all the way back to Aristotle. But here's the deal. In Aristotle's world leading up to the Apostle Paul, the household code of the ancient secular world was very one-sided. It was all one-sided, favoring husbands and fathers and masters. Wives had a responsibility, but the husbands didn't in the ancient secular world. Children had a responsibility, but fathers didn't. Slaves had a responsibility, but masters didn't. But in the Bible, in the book of Ephesians, and in in an abbreviated version of the household code in Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul makes the point that because of Christ, out of reverence for Christ, and because of the truth of Christ, it's not one-sided. Fathers and husbands and masters In the reality of Christ, they have responsibilities too. And Paul talks about those responsibilities in those verses. And once you understand that, then the S word, the submit word, is not culturally regressive. It's radically progressive. It's fresh. It's the gospel lived out. It's the cross. For the Apostle Paul begins this section on the household code with Ephesians 5.21 stating to husbands, wives, fathers, children, masters, slaves, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
See, isn't it true that, that many of the beliefs that our grandparents and great-grandparents had, isn't it true that they, when we think about them, they seem awfully silly or embarrassing to us? Huh? Guess what? That's not going to stop. One of these days, our grandchildren or great-grandchildren are going to be saying the same thing about us, you see. Tim Keller is one of my favorite authors. He's a pastor. He said, to stay away from Christianity because part of the Bible offends you assumes that if there is a God, he wouldn't have any views that upset you. How does that make any sense? Hmm. And when he says that, he gets to an even deeper heart barrier that we struggle with, and it's the authority barrier. It's the authority barrier because the fact of the matter is liberty-loving Americans don't like someone to tell them what to do. And it shows up in our Bible study, doesn't it? Hmm? For instance, when you read the Bible, do you ever read the Bible to reinforce what you believe, not challenge what you believe? When you read the Bible, do you think the things that you read are for people you know but not for you? When you're hearing a message from a pulpit, from the Bible, do you find your elbow digging into someone else's ribs? When you read the Bible, do you imagine yourself as the hero of the story, not the person or people who are unbelieving? When you read the story about the Israelites wandering in the desert, do you ask, how could these people be so unbelieving? How could those Israelites grumble about food and drink when they just saw God part the Red Sea? And all the while, you are oblivious to how you grumble at work or home when you're afraid of losing something. Someone once said that maybe the Bible should come with a warning label. Beware, reading this book incorrectly will make you twice as fit for hell as when you began. (laughs) Ouch. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That the Bible is beautiful truth because it answers our deepest heart questions. Questions that you came to church here with. Questions like, why is it that we hunger for so much more in life? Why is it that we want to live longer Huh? So much so that we, we, we are trying to, to become immortal by melding with a machine to evolve into a new species that can cheat death. Why? Could it be because the Bible has told us something about ourselves like God has put eternity in the hearts of people? Why is it that we fall short of our own standards of behavior? Why are we so conflicted? What fuels our quest for spirituality? What, you know, is it our growing sense of homelessness? What, do we feel restless in this life because in truth we've been designed for another life? The psalmist said, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Bible is the one book that understands me best. And it's truth cuts through my truthiness. 
in a way that strips off the masks that I want to wear. Masks that keep me from seeing myself as I really am. I'm, I'm thinking of the mask of being sinned against. This is the plank and speck mask of Matthew chapter 7. This mask is worn by someone gripped by a sense of being sinned against and not being the sinner. And thus to him that change is needed. See, when I wear the, the, the plank and speck mask of Matthew chapter 7, then the solution is, well, the change has got to happen from the outside in. And Jesus is saying, it needs to happen from the inside out. What about the mask of trials and testing? Spiritually blind people will call the consequences of their own behavior trials and the good things from God's hand testings. And they're going to be blind to the fact that God sends trials for their redemptive good. And to people who wear this mask, life isn't fair. Suffering is without redemptive purpose and a sign that God doesn't love him. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that when we suffer, when we go through painful trials and experiences, it is as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, may be refined and purified. Some people wear the mask of wise counsel. It's a mask. People who wear this mask, they think they're on a quest for wise counsel when the truth of the matter is they're on a quest for someone to support their point of view. And they only consider the opinions of people who agree with them and support the decisions they make. And they don't quote anybody who disagrees with them. They want a Stepford God. A Stepford God. A God that never challenges them. Now, in our small group studies this week, uh, most of the material in your discussion guide that your small group leader will be receiving will deal with these masks. And so I invite you to talk more about these masks that we often wear. Masks which the living and active word of God is able to cut and peel away so that we can see ourselves as God sees us. Church, which of these barriers is more dominant in your life? Which is it? Is it that head issue? Huh? Is it? Um, if it is, then I would recommend our kind of our book of the week. Um, it's out on the table. I assume there's a few more copies out there. It's a book called Busted. I don't know why I'm going away from you with this. I'll show you. It's this book right here. Uh, busted, and it's uh, kind of written on the Mythbusters theme, exposing the popular myths about Christianity. And it's a good, it's a good uh, easy read, and I would recommend it in terms of asking you know, some of the head questions. Can we trust? Why is it that we can trust the historical uh, references in the Bible? And, and, and um, uh, what do we say to people who will say that, you know, all religions teach basically the same thing? This is, this is a good read for those head issues which you may have. And as always, these books out here on the table are $10 or free. Okay. But can I encourage you, church family, don't just read books about the Bible. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. And I've talked a lot from the Gospel of Mark. And I would encourage you to start with the Gospel of Mark. It's the um, most concise gospel. 
it. And, and, and do you remember the prayer that we started our message with? A prayer that is often prayed here uh, before we launch into our teaching. I would recommend that you pray this prayer. And if you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to pray this prayer before you read the Gospel of Mark. And it's simply this. Lord, open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things written in your word, in your truth, in your law. Read books about the Bible. Read the Bible and um, teach it. Teach the Bible. Hmm. Teacher always learns most, you know. And you don't have to go too far here at Windsor Road Christian Church before you know that, uh, you know, a third of our church is uh, children, right? Nursery to high school, a third of our church. And I want to share um, reading that talks about how important it is, parents. Parents, we are the, we are the best children's ministers and student ministers in our child's lives right now. We are. Um, and specifically, I want to share this reading that's addressed to the mothers in our church. It's titled, Mother, You Have a Mission Field. Our first and primary mission field is our children. Your availability, sensitivity, affection, and unhurried attention are irreplaceable. Mothers, there are no neutral moments in a young child's life. Someone is going to be influencing your children, inculcating values and imprinting standards on their impressionable young minds. Let it be you. Don't feel guilty over making your children your primary ministry investment in their early years. This season in your life is just that, a season. And each season is a divine calling from our creator and king. Organizing a new event at church is important. Teaching your little boy to be kind to his sister is also important. But which one can best be done by you during this season? Serve God well by ministering to your children first. Very soon, they will be grown and gone, and you will be unable to recapture the teachable moment you have now. Psalm 78, verses 4 through 7. Tell us why. We will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might, and the wonders he has done, that the next generation might know, so that they should set their hope in God. That's not truthiness. 